Hi, I'm George Collias. Welcome to the GI Collias podcast, where we talk about art, philosophy, literature, and all things classical Greek. Today, we will be talking about Sophocles' satire play, The Trackers. Our topic for today is Sophocles' satire play, The Trackers, the Ichnefte. And as the genre of the satire play, or satire drama, as the Torah term has been called, is much, well, is much less known and studied today than the other two components of Attic drama, tragedy and comedy, we will have to focus more on general remarks about this type of play, its form, its structure, its characteristics and role within the annual dramatic festivals, rather than a specific analysis of the play at hand. In the 5th century, in the years when the three great tragic poets, that is Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, lived, wrote and competed, the major dramatic festival in Athens was the city Dionysia, held in early spring at the theatre of Dionysus under the Acropolis. The city Dionysia, as well as a religious festival and an occasion to watch some theatre, was also a competition. There was a prize for the best playwright director, the two functions were carried out by the same person, and also, starting a bit later on, a prize for best actor. The sponsors, the Corrigi of a victorious play, that is the rich citizens who financed the production, would dedicate a tripod to the god and often built a monumental base for it. The road from the Agora of Athens to the Theatre of Dionysus is known as Tripod Street and it was lined with such monuments. The monument of Lysicrates from the late 4th century is a famous tourist attraction in the Plaque area today. In the tragedy section of the city Dionysia competition, three, play, three playwrights would compete with a tetralogy each. A tetralogy is a set of four plays, and the first three plays, the trilogy, were tragedies. Originally, the three tragedies had the same subject, presented in three successive parts. For example, in Aeschylus or Astyre, the first play, the Agamemnon, is about how King Agamemnon returned home from Troy to be killed by his wife and her lover. The second play, the Libation Bearers, is about how his son, Orestes, killed his father's murderers in revenge. And the third and final play, the Eumenides, describes how Orestes is first hounded by the Aeneas, the bloodthirsty goddesses who avenge homicides, and then is finally acquitted in a court trial in Athens. However, in later years the three parts of the trilogy were not that strictly linked with each other. They each told a different story, although we may assume that there would be a connecting element between the three plays in terms of maybe theme or location the main heroes, etc. And the person credited with the innovation presenting independent plays within the same trilogy was Sophocles, the very writer of the play we're discussing today. Irrespective of how the three tragedies in the trilogy fit together, at the end of the presentation, after the third play, there would always be a fourth section, the satire drama. And it is very important to remember that the Sartre drama had the same office as the tragedies and they were written for the same occasions, the city religious festival.
perhaps even more astonishing for me is that the same actors and the same members of the chorus appeared in both tragedies and satire plays. So after playing the Oedipus Rex and the other two plays of the trilogy, the same actors who had played Oedipus, Jocasta and the seer Tiresias would then appear in a satire play. And the chorus of Theban Elders and the Oedipus Rex would then appear as the semi-naked satires in that very same satire drama. In total, we have about 32 tragedies surviving from the three great tragedians and numerous fragments of other tragedies both by them and by their so-called minor playwrights. However, only one satire play has reached us intact and that is the Cyclops of Euripides. We have fragments and the titles of many other satire dramas, although even here scholars don't seem to be able to agree exactly which of the lost plays we read about were of the satire variety rather than tragedies. It would obviously be very useful to have some more examples of complete satire dramas and ideally of a tragedy and a satire play that were both part of the same tetralogy in order to get a better understanding of how the satire play fit together with the tragedies that preceded it. We know, for example, that the satire play that closed the Oresteia was called the Proteus, and it dealt with the adventures of Menelaus, Agamemnon's brother, when he was shipwrecked in Egypt on his way back from Troy. However, it is very difficult for us to imagine how exactly this light-hearted account of the travels of another member of the Atreida family worked after the gut-wrenching trilogy of family strife, matricide, revenge, guilt, suffering, and atonement. Let us now turn to our play for today, The Trackers, the Ikenefte by Sophocles. A papyrus with fragments of the trackers was only discovered in the beginning of the 20th century. We have about 350 lines of the play, which would be approximately a third or a quarter of the length of a normal tragedy. But as Euripides Cyclops is around 700 lines, we calculate that we must have about half to about two-thirds of the trackers. We have no safe information about when it was written. There is a theory that links it with Sophocles' Ias, the Ajax, as both plays include a herd of cattle. However, as we said, by Sophocles' time, the tragic trilogies themselves had separate themes, so such a superficial similarity seems too weak a piece of evidence to base any firm conclusions. In the beginning of the trackers, the god Apollo appears to announce that his hair was stolen. He has searched all over Greece, but is unable to find either the animals or their thief. He is now on Mount Kilin in Arcadia, and he's willing to offer a large ransom of gold as a finder's fee. Silenus, the old father of the satires, appears and accepts Apollo's challenge. He and his children will find the god's cattle. Apollo will give them the gold as promised and also grant them their freedom. No mention is made of who their current master is, but it seems that it was one of the conventions of the satire play that the satires were enslaved to a cruel master and that in the end they would be set free to return to the service of the god Dionysus. From the depiction of satire courses and vases, we know that the uniform was pretty minimal. 
They were naked, apart from a cloth around the waist, which would include a tail on the back and a giant phallus, a penis on the front. Of course, like all other participants in the tragic competitions, they would be wearing masks to cover their faces. So the satyrs start looking for a oxen. We can gather from the language of the play that their search would involve a wild dance around the stage and probably they would be crouching on all fours, just like animals, say hunter dogs, tracker dogs, where the player gets a title from. We know of a special word, the sickness, to describe the wild and ecstatic dance of the satyr drama, and an expert on the period has pointed out that it would be very helpful to think of the satyr play as a version of ballet, where the movements of the chorus were the central focus of the performance. Silenus, a stock character in all such plays, the older Papa Satyr, hurls abuse at his children for their ineptitude and for assuming those bizarre, animal-like positions. He brags about his past achievements, especially in the erotic field. The young satyrs are excited to discover hoof marks, but then they are confused because these very same tracks seem to be going all over the place. Suddenly, they stop in the tracks and are frightened to death when they hear a completely bizarre and impossible to recognize sound. Silliness at first can hear nothing, but then when he hears the strange sounds for himself, he loses his nerve completely, abandons the search, and lets the younger satyrs carry on on their own. But it is an indication of how incomplete and how corrupt our text is that some scholars disagree and claim that Silenus does stay and it is some of the other satyrs who flee in his stead. Be that as it may, the remaining satyrs, wherever they may be, find a cave in the mountain. A respectable nymph appears and scolds them for their noisy and unruly behaviour. The satyrs are sure that they mean no harm but they've had to find out what this beautiful singing was all about. Killini, because the nymph has the same name as the mountain, makes it clear that what she's about to tell them has to be kept a secret from the goddess Hera, on threat of a severe punishment. Zeus, the father of the gods himself, visited the cave and mated with its mistress. She's not named in her fragments, but she's known otherwise as Maya, they had one son, the god Hermes, but as the mother has been taken ill, so Kilin is in charge of raising him. The baby is only six days old, but already he is the size of a young man. It was he who used the shell of a turtle to make a guitar, and therefore he was responsible for the invention of melody and the music which so startled the young satyrs and drove Papa Silenus away. However, when Killini mentions the use of cow parts in the construction of the instrument, and here it is not clear whether she's talking about gut for the strings or their leather hide for the case, the satyrs realize that the young prodigy god is also responsible for the theft. A heated debate now follows, as the nymph finds it shocking that anyone would suggest that the son of Zeus is guilty of theft. And here a papyrus fragment is cut off. Obviously, this is a version of the story of the birth of Hermes, known to us from various mythological sources, including a Homeric hymn. A plausible ending for the play 
would have Apollo appear and confront his younger brother about the theft. The young Hermes would play a tune on his guitar and enchant the older god, who would propose a swap, the new instrument for the stolen cattle. Thus, the art of music would be born and Apollo would become its patron god. Presumably, the satyrs would get the reward and the freedom, and the day's festivities, because remember, there were no artificial lights in the theatre, so plays were staged by sunlight, would end with some song and dance. So now, we will have to use the 350 odd lines of this play, along with all other fragments we have of satyr dramas, the comments of later scholars of antiquity, and the pictorial representation of satyr choruses and vases, to piece together a story about the genre's form and its position in the classical theatre. The main component, of course, the necessary ingredients, so to speak, were the satires. The satires were the companions of the god Dionysus in mythology long before their institutionalization in the chorus, in the dramatic performance. They were part human, part animal. They had no standard form. Usually, they were depicted as men with some animal characteristics, say horse's ears, or a tail, or the legs of a goat. They were playful and they were lustful. They enjoyed the physical pleasures in life, food, wine, sex. However, as mythical creatures and as companions of the god, they also partook of the divine element. Silliness, as an older satire, could not be expected to keep up with the Duracell bunny energy of his younger companions. He would be more likely to brag about his past adventures, as he does in this play, and to doze off under the influence of alcohol. However, in the tradition, he also had a reputation as a very wise creature, and there's a famous story, told by various authors, of his meeting with King Midas, where the old satire presents his rather pessimistic and melancholic life philosophy. Alcibiades in Plato's Symposium compares Socrates to a silliness. Presumably, it is exactly this contrast between the bestial outside appearance and the inner wealth of wisdom that he wishes to play upon. Apart from the presence of the satires and the chaos, vitality and joie de vivre that could be expected to bring to any situation, the satire drama had many similarities with tragedy. As we saw, it was always tragedians who wrote satire drama as the fourth play of their entry for the dramatic festivals. The actors and the choruses were common to both. The subject matter of the satire drama was the same as that of tragedy. They both drew the stories from mythology, and in particular, there were certain familiar sources that got repeated over and over again. The Homeric epics, the Theban cycle, certain families distinguished for the noble lineage and their incredibly bad luck. However, as far as we can tell, the setting of the satire play was primarily rustic, the countryside, whereas tragedy transferred the old tales to the context of a modern city. Similarly, the protagonists who share the stage with Silvius and his satires are the same gods and mythological heroes who people the main tragedies. And as far as we can tell, they preserve the dignity throughout the proceedings of the satire drama. Notice, for example, how the nymph Kilini starts by scolding the satires for the ruckus they are causing, and how later on in the play she takes offence at the mere suggestion that the son of a god could be a cattle thief. 
Even Apollo preserves a modicum of grace and gravitas, although it would be hard to imagine the omniscient, omnipotent and inscrutable god of tragedy appearing on a tragic stage to make up an appeal for a lost herd of cattle. The vocabulary and metrical style of tragedy and the Saturn place family are very similar, although admirers of Sophocles have noted that the trackers completely lack the moments of poetic brilliance that his seven surviving tragic plays display to such a degree. And all of the above considerations should also clarify for us the differences between the Saturn play and the comedy. First of all, it is a simple fact that comedians never wrote satyr plays as they never wrote tragedies. At least that happened in the 5th century because from the 4th century onwards there were changes in the dramatic landscape in Athens. But there are also two other main differences that need to be noted. First, satire drama is set in the world of mythology, whereas comedy deals primarily with contemporaneous events and real people from the 5th century Athens. The dramatic day in comedy is always the same as the date of production of the play, although gods and sandry mythological characters make frequent visits in comedy. And also in comedy there's an obscenity of language, a scatological humour and a tendency towards ridicule and the grotesque that is completely absent in satire dramas, especially with the other characters, I mean not silliness and the satires are concerned. Now, as Dionysus was the patron god of drama as well as wine in Athens, it comes as no surprise that his companions, the satyrs, should play an active part in the dramatic festival in his honour. However, there exists considerable confusion about the exact chronology and the exact evolution of the various dramatic genres in Athens. Aristotle in the very same chapter in his book on poetics, traces the origin of tragedy to both the satire drama and the dithyramp. The dithyramp was a choral format that was also included in the City Dionysia competition. You would have thought that satire drama was more ancient than tragedy, closer to the primitive countryside rituals in order of Dionysus that were supposed to form the roots of drama. However, our data tells us that official dramatic competitions for tragedy in Athens started way before official dramatic competition for satire drama. Perhaps what happened was that the development of tragedy increased the distance between that charm and its primitive origins. And at some point, it must have been thought necessary to reintroduce a more traditional colour to the competition in the form of the satire drama as an homage to the beginnings of drama. Irrespective now of the exact dating and the evolutionary course of the different subspecies of drama in Attica, once we appreciate the fact that tragedies were always followed by a satire play in the dramatic competitions, our perspective and our understanding are about bound to change radically. Now, both the audience and the actors and the members of the choir knew that the appalling stories of the tragedies, those very same plots that in Aristotle's definition produced pity and fear, would have as their conclusion a spectacle of dancing satires. It is hard not to see the satire drama as a kind of antidote to the tragic, a reminder that no matter how hard life may be, 
how many misfortunes may hit a man and his family, there's also room for the earthly pleasures. Food, drink, sex, a little song and dance. And that these pleasures may be the ultimate defense we have against thinking too much and against worrying too much. As Achilles tells Priam in the Iliad, when the old king of Troy comes to beg for the corpse of his son Hector, even Niobe, who was mourning for the slaughter of her twelve children by Apollo and Artemis, remembered to eat in the end. However, the satire drama was not simply an elaborate dancing exhibition. It wasn't just the performance of an ecstatic or geastic dancing troupe to take the audience's mind away from the sad events that they had just witnessed and to prepare them for their return to life in the city. And of course, the fact that the performance in tragedy and the performance in the satire drama were the same people is also very significant. Tragedy was the genre of the city. It highlighted the problems, concerns, fears, aspirations and prejudices of the community. By setting the stories in the mythical era, the tragedians took a first step towards providing some distance and towards giving some necessary perspective on the issues they dealt with. The Sartre drama now, with its rustic setting, went a step farther away, thus allowing for some extra distance and a slightly different, more remote point of view for examining the very same issues. Furthermore, tragedy dealt primarily with oppositions, the antithesis that the Hellenic mind was obsessed with, man-god, man-animal, man-woman, individual community, Greek barbarian, free man-slave. The satires in their hybrid nature seem to overcome this antithesis by encompassing both sides of all these polarities at once. They were part man, part animal, but also part divine. They lived in communities, but nothing as elaborate as the city-state. They spoke Greek, but they travelled a lot, and the forests that were the natural habitat were other international, or other a-national places. In many places there were slaves themselves, who gained the freedom at the end. The leader Dionysus was the god of fluidity. He changed gender and even animal species continuously and at will. Another common concern in all tragedy was man's lack of knowledge, his ignorance, his ignorance of the god's will and his ignorance even of himself. Silenus, the ugly old drunkard who as it turned out was the possessor of much ancient wisdom, may have served as a reminder that knowledge and pride did not go together. All tragedy tried to highlight the point that 5th century Athenians, with their wealth, their power, their philosophy and their artistic achievements, were often completely ignorant and completely powerless in the presence of forces they had no control over and no understanding of. The society drama might playfully suggest, as an extra afterthought, that such knowledge and wisdom lived where you would least expect to find it. There was definitely an element of nostalgia in the Sarti drama towards a now lost paradise, an age of innocence, a childhood of culture. The satires, in their comprehensive and all-inclusive nature, seem to avoid the problems of the modern citizen, the same problems that in an augmented form plague the heroes of tragedy. However, there was no suggestion that there was an escape option available to the 5th century man, an escape to a pre-lapse, idyllic, back-to-nature situation. 
Both the tragic playwrights and the audiences were too sophisticated for that. Culture and civilization brought their own problems, and we, as human beings rather than satires, simply had to accept them and deal with them as best as we could. Finally, the satire drama has been called tragedy of the play. It is not my wish to, reset, to repeat cliches and platitudes here about the Hellenic genius and what have you. You could even argue that it is difficult to take seriously a play like The Trackers about a set of randy half-men, half-animals who go looking for some missing cows. However, I find utterly fascinating the idea that the very same men who sang the chorus of the old men of Argos in the Agamemnon of Aeschylus, the same chorus who dispenses, disperses in confusion at the end of the play, impotent and unable to decide how to deal with the murder of the king, a little bit later took the clothes off, put a girdle on with a huge penis and a tail to dance the crazy sickness dance of the satyrs in a play by the same morpher. And it should be clear by everything we have said so far that a better understanding of the satire drama and its dynamics is indispensable for a deeper understanding of that most admired and influential of theatrical forms, 5th century Attic tragedy. And this concludes today's episode of the G.I. Collier's podcast on Sophocles' satire drama, The Trikers. I am George Collier's. I would like to thank you very much for listening and I hope to speak to you soon. Bye-bye.